What's, uh, what's the word intentional mean for you? Yeah, intentional means being decisive. Uh, and one of the books I didn't mention, I think it's called Quitting by Annie Duke. And she just talks about almost decision making in reverse of quitting is a decision and humans are bad at quitting on time. Usually we wait too long. So it, it, I wrap intentional just that focused decision making. Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Welcome back, everybody. My guest today's name is Mike Spack, and he's going to be sharing with us his story about how he started, grew, and then truly pivoted after the pandemic, grew again, and finally sold Spack Solutions, which provides technologies and guidance for government staff and their contractors to help them tame congestion and eliminate traffic fatalities. Mike started and grew Spack Solutions into a multifaceted and multi-million dollar company with 20,000 plus blog followers and clients all over the world. Mike made really hard decisions when the pandemic hit because his revenues dropped by 75% and he had to figure out what to do about it, who to cut and why. And what Mike was left with was the most scalable part of his company that he then grew and scaled up to seven figures of EBITDA with only a couple people that took roughly 10 hours per week. And Mike was extremely thoughtful and intentional when he worked on his long-term goals after the pivot. He actually went through the Intentional Growth Academy, spent tons of time researching and learning what his options were, weighing those options. And by options, I mean scaling, growth options, exit options, how all of the first, second, and third principles, the first one of your vision, second one of your financial targets, and the third one of the exits, how each of those identified outcomes, what they meant to him, his timeline, and what he wanted, and that why he chose the goal he eventually chose. He eventually sold the company to an acquisition entrepreneur only a couple months ago. And so today, Mike is going to be sharing with us his story about how and why his journey unfolded the way it did. And the reason I'm so excited about this conversation is because Mike embodies so much of what I believe it means to intentionally grow. He's so damn thoughtful. Maybe it's because of the engineer in him. And he's also self-aware, which made this conversation super fun for me because he was able to recount his experiences the choices were in front of him. And what I really find interesting is when I explain or when I'm asking people about the choices they made, it's about understanding too about how unclear the outcome might be. So he's explaining what the choices were, why he made them, and then what actually happened and how he feels about the outcomes and how everything unfolded. And so I am so excited for you to hear Mike's journey. The quick announcement we have today is that you can sign up for the Intentional Growth Online Academy. As I mentioned in the last episode, what we're going to continue to do for our listeners is that the do-it-yourself MSRP is 1500 bucks. but for the podcast listeners, we're offering $500 off. So if you go click the link in the show notes, you'll get 500 bucks off leaving the do-it-yourself for the 995 And if you're not ready for that and you're not ready to jump into the academy, and by the way, on that academy page too, I've got the uh, curriculum on there. There's a bunch of videos that explain each of the five principles, but if you're still not ready for that, I highly recommend checking out the Intentional Growth 
financial scorecard takes less than five minutes and you get a custom score in in four different areas of your financials as well as an overall intentional growth score. And the purpose of these scores is to judge you on how well you're viewing and running the company like a financial asset. So the four sections are financial data management and organization. The second one is monthly financial package and performance monitoring. The third section is strategic budgeting and forecasting and cash flow management. And then the fourth category is equity growth valuation and ownership. Again, it's going to be super fast. I would highly recommend going and checking out. And then when you get your response, there's actually a bunch of videos that I personally walk through a case study that I pulled from the Intentional Growth Academy to show you what good looks like. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Mike. So without further ado, here is Mike's back. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want but what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and in doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Welcome, my friend. 
Hey, Ryan. Great to be here. Uh, so, like I said, let's just hit record because I was going to naturally just start getting into a bunch of questions. And I'm like, what the heck? We might yeah. as well have them on, on, the, on the record. <laughs> but why don't you just give the listeners a little bit of a backdrop on you know, where you like your overall background, but then I maybe start with Mike, like how you came across us. Cause you know, you had, uh, was on one of our webinars and you are an avid learner, man. And you and I started riffing right off the bat of all the different topics that we like to talk about in life, but you have just taken the bull by the horns, man. And, uh, have gone through a lot over the last couple of years, but why don't you kind of give everybody just the backdrop of, you know, your, the, the business and then how you stumbled across us and what we're about to unpack for that conversation. Sounds great. So I started my first company as what's now called a side hustle in 2001. So I had this journey, 20 year journey going into the pandemic and our business revenue was cut 75% in the pandemic. And so it was very much survival mode, made all the right cuts to make sure we survived. And then coming out of the pandemic, business rebounded. And because of the cuts and transitions I made, our profitability skyrocketed and I was really regrouping and studying, hey, what should I do next coming out of the pandemic? Because I had kind of shrunk down what we were focusing on. I felt like I had bandwidth to, should I acquire a business? Should I merge it in? How should I be growing the company? Or is now the time to sell the business? And Ryan, I have a close friend of mine, Lance, who's in Vistage and saw you speak at one of their events. And uh, Lance was telling me all about Arcona and what you guys have going on. So I started digging into your website and the timing was great. And I like, yeah, I'm all in. I want to learn. I'm kind of a learning machine. And uh, <laughs> yeah, the, so yeah up. exclamation point underline of that. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I jumped into the Arcona training system and I wanted the in-person so I could talk to Ryan and your team and really get the coaching one-on-one and, listened to a bunch of the podcasts before I committed to make sure this wasn't some fly by night kind of thing. There's, there's so much stuff out there that seems just made up, mm -hmm. but your journey, Ryan really resonated and had the confidence that you guys knew what you're talking about and going through the different models of buyers and sellers, whether it's ESOPs or private equity, kind of the podcasts I listened to kind of gave me that 50% of the knowledge, but I knew going through the training course and getting the one-on-one -on -one coaching that that was the way for me to go to, to really dig into and find, find out the nuances. I appreciate yeah. the, the, the compliments and the, you know, let's let, maybe give a little bit of backdrop because uh, I want to take that journey. And, and you know, now that you're on the other side, after you made this recent decision, but you're a very thoughtful person, Mike, and that's what I really appreciate. And honestly, you made our job a lot of fun because you're so thoughtful that I love helping people think through things. And so maybe give us a little bit of a backdrop of what, what the business was prior to COVID, you know, kind of the different makeup of the business. And then I want to go through like, what were your thought processes? Cause you were really doing a lot of um, reflection of like, where do you want to go? And what were the decisions? Cause like, you know, each of your paths could have been wildly different based on, you know, what choices you made, but you were thinking through those paths ultimately leading to this outcome of, but maybe kind of give us a little bit of a backdrop. What was the business and then what was the makeup? And yeah, so I'm a civil engineer. I have a civil engineering degree. And uh, so worked for consulting firms doing design work of roads and traffic signals and, 
would do traffic studies of Walmart comes to town. Okay, where are we going to put the driveways? Do we need a traffic signal at the intersection? Does the interchange nearby need to be widened out to handle the new traffic loads? Uh, after about five years into my career, I found a little side hustle of collecting traffic data for other engineers. And I had a network here in Minnesota of other engineers I convinced to start using me. Um, so the night weekend gig. And from there, I, in hindsight, was pretty gutsy thinking I could be a consultant, <laughs> but started letting people know, hey, I have some of these things I could do for you. And so started layering and consulting. Uh, and then a real turning point for me, I, I worked about five years by myself with some temp agency staff, and I had an an assistant um, kind of helping me with put together engineering reports. But big turning point uh, about 15 years ago, I started a blog called Mike on Traffic. And I gave myself a weekly deadline of, okay, every Friday I have to write something. I originally thought, hey, this is going to be great. I'm going to get all kinds of business out of this. It's the new marketing wave. Well, it turned out my clients who are kind of city engineers or Walmart or CVS, they don't care what I have to say, but I was kind of given the inside scoop, nuts and bolts of how I was doing things as a traffic engineer mm. and my business journey and what I was learning. And that started attracting other traffic engineers, consultants and data collectors. And so then I, a big pivot was, hey, what can I start helping these folks mm, with cool and kind of technology for collecting traffic data, different camera systems were starting to come online. So kind of, I literally went to the garage and started tinkering, uh, with coming up with my own camera system. It was very clunky with a car battery and people would watch the video and transcribe it with a keyboard system, but it was better than sitting on the side of the road at six in the morning. So it was a step forward and I just, timing was perfect. I could start an online store to sell this stuff. I had a little bit of an audience from the blog and things started to snowball. And a couple of years later, the online store is building up. We got customers around the world. I have about 20,000 people reading my blog posts uh, globally. Uh, I'm building up the consulting practice to a half a dozen engineers. Uh, right before the pandemic, we had a staff of 16 and we we're doing consulting work around the country. We were doing the service of collecting traffic data in the Midwest, and then we we're selling this computer system worldwide. So in some ways, we were our own best customer with these products because we we're utilizing them in-house. But then the pand pandemic hit, everything related to traffic engineering shut down. Uh, pandemic solved like literally, congestion. Literally, <laughs> I was going to say, literally yeah. people stopped driving. <laughs> yes, literally people stopped driving and all the planning work stopped because we couldn't collect the baseline traffic data to then layer the analysis on top of because everything was so out of whack. So really for about a year, everything shut down and I got hardcore. Uh, I furloughed. I, I shrunk down to a staff of three from 16. Uh, in about six months. Hey, let's unpack that, Mike, because like when you and I met, you, you know, you had explained, cause, so let me see if I got this correct. So you have a consulting 
portion of the business because you had a couple different types of business models within the umbrella, right? You had a consulting, yeah. product services, and then was there another revenue stream? Was it data licensing or something like that? Or was it, or was it just two revenue streams? Uh, so we had the consulting, we had the products, and then we had services, and we we're doing webinars and training okay. as well. So we had every type of business model you could have underneath this mm -hmm. umbrella of SPAC solutions. And we kind of thought one plus one would equal three, but it turns out through the pandemic, what I learned was the products were subsidizing everything else. Like, uh, did, did you learn that afterwards, after the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, if I would have really had the financial acumen and dug into it, it was all sitting there. Got um, it. But as, as an engineer and entrepreneur with no business training, it's you make it up as you go. And we had good accounting, uh, kind of fractional CFO with bookkeeping, but it was at the bookkeeping level. We Got weren't it. getting analysis and insights. And because we had all these different things going on, our marketing messaging was a mess. Our, we had lots of fans and lots of clients who we were helping, but we couldn't come up with kind of that one sentence tagline mm -hmm. because you're doing so many different things. And like, so let's talk about like, I mean, man, like I've been there, Mike, and you know, and I've had these conversations about how difficult it is to make those hard choices. And I mean, when I think about the people I've interacted with over the last few years and they, people like there are people that understand what they're looking at, the, the, you know, the, the train light and, and versus the sunlight where it's like, you have to make these hard choices and people you can either choose to step off the tracks or they can deal with it. How did you deal with it? Like emotionally and operationally of like understanding what divisions to actually, you know, deal with and then to furlough those people, what gave you the courage to make the hard choices and then how did you determine that those were the right choices? I, I really need to thank Keith Cunningham, who's retired now. Uh, he wrote the book, The Road Less Stupid, oh, which amazing. I read. Oh, amazing. Uh, yeah, which I read kind of right as the going into the pandemic. And Keith put out a couple of emails and videos at the time that just said, hey, been there done this, not quite a pandemic, but I've been through lots of tough situations and here's my playbook. You got to deal with reality and you have to deal with the numbers. And as the owner slash CEO, your number one job is to make sure the company survives. And so it was really his guidance as somebody who's been through crises before and kind of the crisis management playbook of you don't have you don't have the luxury of being emotional, and it's a good way to I, put it, right? It's a really I, good way to put I, it. I was emotional. I mean, this no no business owner ever wants to let someone go, mm -hmm. and so I had a lot of sleepless nights. I had some dark thoughts in those sleepless nights. I mean, I pulled myself out of it, but like I'd wake up at three in the morning mm -hmm. and couldn't fall back asleep, get out, get the legal pad of paper, start writing my thoughts down and just like, okay, here's our reality right now. Couldn't depend on government bailouts. We ended up getting some PPP, but didn't know when or how it was coming. Yeah, you're just, not going to bank on Keith's, that, right? Yeah. No, Keith, Keith's words of base reality. And when your revenue dropped 75%, yet I had 200 grand worth of fixed operating expenses a month because I had all these engineers on staff mm -hmm. and salespeople. It's like, there's no revenue. I can't, he was very good at saying, 
the company's not worth losing your house, losing your retirement savings. Don't just ignore it mm-hmm. and assume it's all going to work out. Um, and he's got a wonderful phrase for the stupid decisions. It's called the dumb tax, right? <laughs> In that book, it's so, so yes. great. Yeah. How, how did you then, when you look at the different business models that you had underneath SPAC solutions, how did you determine which ones to take care of and which ones to keep, which ones to get rid of and which ones to keep? Yeah, that, it was pretty straightforward that there was no consulting work coming in. So I furloughed the engineers and they quickly could get jobs with state DOTs and government agencies. So they all like, we're not going to ride this out with you, Mike. We're, we're furloughed. We're going to go get other jobs. And so they all landed on their feet within weeks, maybe a month. That helped um, help with you process it. Yeah, that helped mentally for sure. Uh, it was tough letting go a couple of my sales staff because they had a much harder time, but they were on unemployment and they eventually landed jobs. Uh, the service business where we were doing traffic counting, I ended up putting that up. I contacted five kind of national, international competitors. I, I kind of kept a moat around Minnesota and a little bit the Midwest area that I was the dominant service provider, but I just put it out there that, Hey, this is for sale. And if you want my one full-time technician and our gear, we'll sell it to you. Um, so I kind of on the side struck a deal that they got a very fair deal as it turns out coming out of it. Um, and a lot of that payment was kind of a profit sharing earnout calculation on the consulting side, I have plenty of friends in the industry and I, a small consulting company that was hanging on because it was just the two owners. I basically struck a referral deal with them Mm -hmm. that if customers came, whenever customers came back in the next two years, Hey, I'll refer you on. And if you guys land the work, I get a 10% cut Mm -hmm. for a referral Mm -hmm. fee. So very, it was a good way for me to take care of my clients and it was good for their business. So it was kind of just what what's making money. And we're still trickling, selling some product and selling some of the video processing data analytics we were doing through the e-commerce store because we were international. So as the pandemic would ebb and flow around the world, we would have some revenue trickling in from the, oh, from the online store. I bet you that's just a total side note, like how interesting of the data that you must have seen about the pandemic, like you're seeing ebb and flowing around all the, like you truly see it in the traffic data, right? Of what's going on. Yes. So, right. fascinating. So, so the process really was where's money trickling in. And if the money wasn't trickling in, it's okay. We got to shut that spigot off. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. So it was straightforward. And so then and when you had come across us and when you and I first had a conversation, um, you you had had done all these moves and you had a very interesting setup because you had told me, that, you know, the, the story, but you had a pretty solid like profit margin on what you'd kept, right? Like, I mean, I think about like what you had left over and I'm like, that's not a bad gig, man. <laughs> like, as in like the revenue, yeah. the amount of hours worked. And so like, maybe kind of just walk through the setup. You don't have to give any numbers specifically unless you, you're all comfortable with it. But like the setup was like, holy crap, Mike, you got a, not a bad deal here. Yeah. yeah with, uh, I ended up in 2021 kind of June, my salesman left and we had built a bunch of the systems with my fractional CFO. I had been moving pieces around 
to really embrace the, the mantra of who, not how. So we had set up Shopify as the engine underneath uh, to take the e-commerce business and process payments. We had set up a third-party logistics 3PL warehouse fulfillment center. So our product would sit there, the Shopify, the orders would come in and the fulfillment center would just fulfill those. Uh, and then all those transactions would automatically flow into our QuickBooks online system. And uh, our accounting team set up something called bill.com, which was a way we could just su submit and keep track of purchase orders and make sure all the payments were going out. So we automated, basically, once somebody ordered all the way through the fulfillment, it was automated. Uh, we had to have a team in India watching videos of intersections and transcribing that into traffic data. And that's a surf, that's kind of the razor blade. So the video cameras we came up with are the handles and Got the service business in India was the razor blades. We built the system. So the video that was also e-commerce and the videos would flow from the customer to India without us touching them. Um, and that was really the last piece, but we look like a much bigger company because we're leveraging all of these mm -hmm. cloud tools to make the system as seamless and automated as possible. And we were kind of the puppet masters on the outside, me and my staff of just making sure things were working mm. um, and handling any tech support anomalies, but 98% of the work just flowed. Um, so that made us very scalable. So 2020, I broke even. Um, so I, I didn't lose money, but I personally didn't make any money. Um, like I just got to, I just call that out that Mike, that is a freaking miracle. Given how fast you made the decisions, you ate yeah. the glass and you made yeah. and, and you moved into the action. Cause you could have probably lost a lot of money at 200 K fixed I, income or fixed expenses every yeah. month. Oh my God, man. Per month. Yeah, yeah. I could have easily been underwater seven figures. Yep. yep. If so, I didn't. Congrats. If I breaking didn't, even is a, like, yeah, seriously, man. Yeah. Yeah. So then 2021, we come out and profited plus my salary kind of half a million. Then 2022, we profited EBITDA seven figures and I'm like, oh, wow, this is quite the growth trajectory, and it is scalable. And how many people you got on staff at that point, too, right? I, yeah, I have two. And how many time, uh, How many hours a week are you working? Uh, it's, it's variable, but in the five to ten hours where I'm actually sitting down and making things happen and having team meetings and talking to customers. I mean, there, you and I have talked that, hey, if you're meditating, if you're exercising, if you're eating right, if you're studying and reading business books and all of this, is that work or is that hobby? And that's mm -hmm. uh, who knows. Right, right, right. But, no, no, that's very good call. It. And actually, I think this is a good time too, Mike, because you're the one that referred me to Keith Cunningham's book, The Road Less Stupid, and I just love it. And what I love, because I think what, let, let me know if you relate to this analogy that he gave in that book, because it kind of it's reconciled with what, how I viewed your setup is he said, there's, a, I don't know how he said it, but like, there's no such thing as passive income. It's a bunch of bullshit. And he goes, however, he was, he said something around like, you know, that merry-go-round at the park where if you like, when you spin it and it just takes like a lot of work, it's like the flywheel concept. Yeah. And then like, when you have your machine going, you barely have to touch it, but you have to attend to it and you have to be there and be present to just slightly tap it to keep it going. And if you don't, it stops and it, and it breaks. 
And that's kind of what I viewed you in your setup. Does, it, does that relate? That is exactly the system I was able to create. And one of the major reasons I sold the company was I'm not sure if like the gears and <laughs> the ball bearings underneath the thing is something going to break down because we're, we're a team of a couple of people and we're a technology company and just the company has continued to sell after I sold it a couple of months ago, but one thing could go off and the whole thing could break and tip over and no longer would I just be tapping it. Um, <laughs> That's what, almost so, like you, you get your foot caught in the merry-go-round your foot snaps in half and you're getting I, dragged around yeah. by the merry-go-round. <laughs> that, that was becoming more and more my concern. Got and it. We were doing so well. I felt like I was kind of sitting at the casino at midnight and all of a sudden through not much planning, but just kind of stumbled in. Hey, there's a good run. I got a bunch of chips on the table. I could maybe double these chips or triple these chips if I waited till three in the morning and kept playing. But I could also lose most of it. It was kind of the feeling I was yeah. starting to get. It's super helpful, Mike, because that I think that was – is that safe to say like when you and I got jumped on our first training call, like that was kind of your mindset of like what route do I go? And like then you got me and Buskirk going – it's not a bad gig, man, what you got going on <laughs> and like from the cash flow and right. the time. But then you were like, kind of walk us through like the different avenues that you were exploring from your mindset from like, should I go this route, this route from like, not only maybe two, two lenses, Mike, from the operations, what are the strategies that you were looking at for the business going forward? And then also the different types of buyers, because there were kind of the, were those kind of two different avenues that you were kind of thinking through, yeah. like how do these... Uh, reconcile with the long-term plan. Yep. So I, based going through the pandemic, based on the road less stupid, I was very aware of all the risks in my company, and I shored a lot of those up with supply chains and fulfillment and all of the automation and leaning on outsourced teams. Like if you use a team of fractional CFOs, like okay, that one quits, but you still have the system and somebody else steps in, so you have the redundancy there. But I got down to the point where I wasn't sure how to solve my VP of product engineering is brilliant, but he has this, he's computer science degree, but he races motorcycles and he makes stuff in his shop and like all of these things where he's got the physical and the software and he's one guy who's the complete package. But if he crashes his bike at Daytona in a month, like I, I couldn't wrap my head around how do I make the redundancy there mm -hmm. without it being half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. I mean, I stumbled into a guy who I pay very well as an engineer, but I'm paying one salary. Mm -hmm. So I kind of worked on all of the risks and got it down to like, okay, Chris is my biggest risk. And I don't know how to backstop that. Did you ever ask him, um, Hey dude, can you stop uh, racing motorcycles? <laughs> and, no, because that's one of the things I love about him is, is just, that's part of his nature. His personality has been doing it for 30 years. I mean, he just, that's, that would be taking away the nature <laughs> right. of the guy. Uh, yeah. I, I can only imagine uh, how he fills out his life insurance uh, underwriting policy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike's yep. got concerns about, I can't imagine the life insurance company. <laughs> yes. Um, so that was one path on the operation side. I kept taking care of the redundancies and we had some backup so I could stumble through if something happened to Chris, but it was going to be painful. Um, so that's one side. And then when I came to Arcona and I was 
working through kind of the, I think, five types of acquirers, it was clear nobody internally wanted to buy it. Uh, we're too small for an ESOP, even though I love the concept of ESOPs. If if we had 30 employees, and I, I strongly would have considered that just to be able to take some of the chips off the table. Um, and then going down the routes of private equity and a financial buyer, I through thinking and talking to you guys and doing more studying, I wasn't I wasn't interested in kind of the second bite of the apple with private equity of, hey, sell 70% of your company, stay on and work 60 hours a week for us in the hopes that we can help jump you and, and double your money. Um, I'm ready for a change was what I decided. I, I was also thinking, should I be acquiring parallel businesses to provide redundancy? Should I be trying to acquire a similar business so maybe I could find backup to Chris? Hey there, it's me. Sorry to interrupt the interview for just a quick second. As you can tell, Mike Spack got a lot of clarity through going through the Intentional Growth Academy. If you're wondering, what is the target equity valuation that you want? How do valuations work? How do I predict my future cash flows, understand my distributions and the effort that I might need to get the outcome that I want? And what are the outcomes that are available like ESOPs, private equity, internal acquisition entrepreneurs, how do valuations work, how do all these things work? Go check out the Intentional Growth Academy. We are offering up 500 bucks off for the do-it-yourself version. So it's only 995, not 1500 bucks. The link's in the show notes. And if you're still not convinced that that is worth your time or the investment, just go take the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard, which judges how well you're viewing and running the company like a financial asset based on four sections. And you're gonna get five videos and a customer response. And in those five videos, I'm gonna walk you through the case study from the Intentional Growth Academy where I show what good looks like. So you can see how does that value gap analysis actually work? How do I actually use my income statement, balance sheet and cash flow statement? And what is the possibility when I tie those three together and project those into the future to truly see what is the roadmap and how are you gonna to get to where you wanna go? So that way, like Mike was saying, he could quickly and competently understand the time and energy and capital that he was willing to spend for the goal that he wanted. And that's how he picked his outcome. So if you want that level of clarity, go check out the Intentional Growth Academy or the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard based on where you think uh, you want to start first. So thanks everybody for tuning in. And here again is back to the interview with Mike Spack. I, and I, I just have to anything. say, man, like I, I just so much admiration for how well you thought through and to the extent you thought through all these different options because like you were fluid with your timeline and correct me if I'm wrong with any of this Mike because it's been a couple of years but like you know you were like oh I really like this ESOP and you and I and Matt were talking about like what would that mean it's like well you could buy a company reinvest build the infrastructure might take you three to five years and you would like you wouldn't just poo poo it right away you would actually think through that scenario from your like all your the different components of it before just you know looking at other scenarios so, i mean like i said acquisitions you looked at a lot of these different options and so you were being very thoughtful man and i just think that's super cool because it wasn't i mean people could have easily just sat there and clip coupons and not done anything you know and then also when people have that kind of cash flow and that kind of time you know to generate that cash flow it easily could have been not advantageous to want to go about that whole effort to build something bigger so you just how did you think through that? Like, what were your principles of like, what was important to you from like, you know, to, not to be told too much from the, uh, the uh, intentional growth principles, but your vision, like what were you, what was the lifestyle you were trying to create and what were the financial outcomes? And then how did you 
judge that over the time and headaches to create what you wanted? How did that, how did that all kind of wrestle through your mind? Yeah, you, your framework really helped of laying out the options and what those options would look like. And really the hardest part for all of us is, hey, what do I want life to look like five, 10 years down the road? And kind of starting with that end in mind, um, it's so easy to just keep going down the path. So that was part of your process and the other books I had read really drive that home of any other books you want to give a shout out to, uh, the thing that helped most, actually, I was in strategic coach program out of Chicago, Dan Sullivan's program, and some of his books and his teaching are, are very good at getting you into the future mindset, but not dwelling just on the future, but also looking backwards. Uh, that was the most helpful uh, of keeping a, a good perspective on the whole situation. Awesome. Um, so, so that that's the thing I'd shout out the most. Awesome. And and so as you're going through that, wh- like where the kind of clarity came to, like, so where did you land on after you wrestled through all these ideas of like lifestyle, time, buyers, you know, the value that you wanted to create or harvest? What did the picture look like that you were then say, okay, this is what I want to go get? What, what was that? Because then we can get into like what you actually ended up doing. Yeah, the, I think the clarity really came a, a book I should shout out. I believe it's called Die With Zero from Bill Perkins. I've heard that a and couple times he, recently. I got I to gotta pick that up. And yep, he's a engineer type, but energy trader done very well. But I've heard the idea other places, but we, the three big resources we have to our life and living intentionally and building the life we want is we have time, health, and money. And when we're young, we have all the health and the time in the world. And then as our careers ramp up and our families ramp up, we have less and less time. And then there is a curve to our health degrading. Uh, but the interesting thing he found was the money curve that most of the folks listening to the podcast, your money's going to be increasing exponentially. But he said that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, because you, you essentially got a bunch of these bell curves going down and the, the money's going up. <laughs> Right. So his, he reframes the money part of, hey, you want your money to peak maybe in your 50s, but then you should be drawing it down. And you can be drawing it down by giving the money to your kids while they're in their 20s and helping them buy a house versus giving it to them when you die and they're in their 60s and they've already been through all the milestones and yeah. It, yeah, yeah. the money doesn't matter that much. Or give it to the charities so they can say thank you and you can see the benefit of your work instead of leaving it to charity when you're dead and you can't see it. But using that money in a tool and kind of that helped me figure out I'm 49 right now. My health is good. My money is good. I have 50% more than I need. Like, okay, I, I actually should be spending this money. <laughs> if what I a sell weird the business, reframe, right? Of- like think about like, think about the five-year journey or whatever it would have taken for the ESAP, buy a company, grow the infrastructure to generate 10 million. And it's way more than you need technically. And you went through all of that yes. hard work for what, right? Right. So that incremental benefit from having $20 million instead of $7 million, like, okay, fine. I can't buy a Porsche GT or whatever. Like maybe I like, like, is that worth five years of your life is the decision I made to cool. Yeah, man. I love it. Yeah. So that reframe things for me, like, okay, this is enough money. So why would I keep doing this? And 
I, I'm taking a sabbatical. I'm, I'm never going to retire, um, but I'm not focused on making money in the next 12 months. I'm, it's just, I'm a creative guy. I like making things. I, I'll let's go talk, let's talk about, let, yeah. I was, yeah. Let's pull this thread because um, out of all of the, the, I mean, my God, however many people, the, the, the sheer volume of people, Mike, that I get concerned about were like, their identity is so tied to everything that they're wrapped up with in their business, the community, that their brand, the logo, the business card. There was a comment that you said to me. There's kind of two parts of this. I want to hear your thoughts on it. One is that when we were going through the training and we were talking about the, your vision, the principal one, and you said, I just don't want to be traffic Mike anymore. And I, I don't know if that, if you get, I want to hear your thoughts on that. And the second, maybe more just a comment is, I was not ever once concerned ever since I met you that you were not going to know what to do on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> yeah. So maybe kind of unpack, you know, that in, in both of those comments. I don't know if you got thoughts on them. Yeah. I, I vividly remember young in my engineering career. There are a couple of guys who worked for the Minnesota department of transportation who retired and then died within 12 months of retiring. And, and, that's the kind of job where you slog through for 35 years. You're so you can have a pension. So then you can live life after I knew lots of guys who were like, okay, I'm not that happy on the job, but you know, the, the end of the rainbow is going to be great. And then they uh, hearing these stories of dying right away that I remember 30 years ago thinking, Hey, this, what's going on here. Um, It doesn't seem worth it. (laughs) Right. So kind of thinking about those transitions, and I, I know that part of that where guys get in trouble is that they do wrap up their identity in their company and that is who they are. And that's the cocktail conversation. And that's, that is everything to them. And I decided if I can break that when I'm about 50, I can re I have time and energy to reinvent that identity. It's going to be a slog and, I probably will always be an entrepreneur making stuff, but I don't need to be Mike on traffic anymore. So it was very thoughtful on, hey, it's time to have a reset while I have the energy and the mentality to do it. Whereas if I try to do that when I'm 70, it's that I I can't imagine trying to unwind that after doing something for 50 years and thinking you're going to do that successfully. So, um, so observant and self-aware of you, man. And like, uh, it's still hard as hell, man. Like I think about like, I mean, I did it in my later twenties and it still sucked. Um, but like, I'm curious cause like, I mean, dude, when we, even when we hung out after the, the, the training and coaching sessions, I mean, dude, we never talked about, I mean, we talked about like meditation and health and this and that. So you like, you have so many things that you're excited about, which is what I, again, like, that's why I said, I, I never was concerned that you're going to have a lack of things to do. It's more probably like what are going to be the things that keep you in balance. So like, I mean, how do you, like if someone were to like, do you have any concerns if someone say, Hey Mike, what do you do? Do you have any concerns or anxious anxiety around that? I don't have anxiety, but it's been the conversations. I, I was just telling my wife, Jane this morning, I almost need to come up with that comedy bit shtick of, I need the two minute answer to, I sold my company. Here's why I sold it. Here's what I'm doing with my life right now. Because it's it's so easy to say, oh, I, I run a company that does this and have your 20 second answer. But now it's a more complicated answer. And 
I, I don't have it boiled down. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, like, I like that, man. Like we should have that as like 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 the award that someone gets with the the signed purchase agreement of the sale of their company is here's your new two uh, two sentence phrase that you, you use when you're talking to the world. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. So that eh, there's so much time and energy and focus going into selling a business, as you know, Ryan, that I think no I don't know your tell me your experience, but I really tried to prepare myself for when it was over, but it really is a shock to the system when it is over. And even though I was prepared, I still feel I mean it's only been a month and a half, two months. I'm still figuring it out. I'm still floundering. Mm -hmm. Still there's some mornings waking up like what should I do when I get out of bed? <laughs> it's 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 a bizarre you know what I there's a couple yeah, I do have a couple comments on that, Mike. And like I had phantom anxiety and I called it and I made that word up by the way. <laughs> I, like, I love it. I was like, I was like, when I say phantom anxiety, cause I'm like, it's this sheer like decoupling of responsibilities that is so bizarre. Like I was like, I'd look at my phone out of pure, like the dopamine habit of looking at like who needs me. And I'm like, no one needs me or the different people need me for different reasons but like, it's like this shift of attention, this spotlight kind of goes away from you. And you're like, uh, like, <laughs> where do I fit? And like, and so um, I, I think it's a, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I like it because I, I, you can do as much as you want to, to prepare yourself for that. But like what I struggled with, Mike, and, and I go back to Dan Sullivan's four freedoms of uh, the freedom of time, the freedom of money, the freedom of uh, purpose and um, people. And it was like, how I think about that, Mike, and I, and I don't know if you and I talked about Nassim Taleb and anti-fragile and some of these things were like, it, it's what is occupying your mind? And Taleb said something to me, or not, not to me, but in his book, <laughs> but like <laughs> him and I are just chatting all the time. Uh, but like, I want to have the freedom to think about what I want to think about, but I never realized how much of it was forced upon me in the old world. So it was like the industry it was technology. It was like, there was topics and people that were forced into my mind that having that not filled was like weird to me. And I don't know if that relate, yeah. if you can relate to that or. Yeah, that definitely resonates of just being in a specific industry with all of the specific people in that industry. It, yeah. It's, it's a default and you don't have to mm -hmm. think about that default that just kind of seeps in. And mm -hmm. that's been the transition of, what as i went what, through what the, do i think about yeah what as i, I went through today? the business transition it's like okay i'm turning these software programs off one at a time as i'm going through the transition and i'm not doing these things anymore and i'm not reading these journals and talking to these people it's like okay i should be back filling this time and yeah that's the journey it's but, bizarre it's, it's yeah. really it is a bizarre deal like in yeah, man. And I like, I, there, I think that there's something to be done. Cause you, I mean, you and I riff on the same books, man. Like I, I honestly, when I met you, I was like, I think I might've met my rival for how many like things that Mike has read. Cause like you were, I was like taking notes and taking books, but it's like, it's, you can, maybe there's like this thing of like, Hey, we're just entrepreneurs and we're visionaries. And he, these are like the topics I like to talk about. These are the things I like to consume. And these are the daily things that I like to do and the people I like to hang out with. And like, hopefully there's things that are, there's income coming in and equity that's growing in various assets, but it's kind of a whole slew of things instead of one thing. I don't know. I don't have the answer to it just yet. <laughs> no, I'm still making it up. <laughs> too. So 
as you determine to pick your path of like, okay, so now I understand and, and the, okay, the thing could wobble and the whole cash flow in the company can go away. You decided that the timeline was shorter than longer because of the money. So then what was the next step forward that you did? Was it, was it advisors that you reached out to? Was it buyers? What was the, what was now that the path was clear, what were the steps that you took? Yeah. I, a big part of the journey for me, because we were essentially an online store is kind of four months before I joined, joined something called e-commerce fuel. So it's a, a membership group of thriving e-commerce businesses. And I started poking around in there. I tapped my local network, like uh, M and a advisors, that kind of stuff talked to, but through the e-commerce fuel, I started to realize e-commerce businesses are a whole different game for buying and selling, that the rules are just different, that your valuation is based on your trailing 12 months of EBITDA, not a five-year window. So that was really appealing. Typically, they have almost no transition period because your acquirer already has e-commerce and hopefully you have the same platforms and everything. So they're just plugging another product stream into what they already do. So I started to figure those things out. And as I was going through the Arcona training and what would my ideal vision of how this is all going to end up, it's started to check the boxes of, Hey, a very quick transition, um, almost all cash up front, no earn out, no staying on for years at a time. It just kept checking all of the boxes and through the e-commerce fuel, I figured out there are a couple of brokers who specialize in selling e-commerce businesses. And I tracked down the one that everyone within the forum said is the best. Their fees were high, um, but they have this online system, for, which makes sense <laughs> for attracting e-commerce buyers and E-commerce businesses are a lot more of a back and forth commodity, I learned, than kind of your more traditional bricks and mortar type businesses. Do you, do you mind that? Give it, do you want to give a shout out to the, the broker? Yeah, Quiet Light and Chris Guthrie at Quiet Light was my business broker and they have a really interesting model. They tried to hire like salesmen a dozen years ago. Uh, it was started by a couple of guys who had a couple of exits. And so they're Mark like, Dallas has been on the show and he's a local Minnesotan too. Uh, great. So yeah. So Chris had sold a couple of SaaS companies, my broker. So he understood going through the process as well as what I would be going through. Um, and he was very good at kind of shielding the initial conversations of they do an interesting job of doing an interview video and really preparing a book of material to give to prospects after they acquirers after they sign the NDA. So that eliminates a whole lot of people. They have a very good filtering process to drive you down to not wasting a lot of time. That's awesome. And I want to get in, I want to continue the process that you went through and as you can shed some light on that, but um, just real quick. So I want to, a couple comments, like you're right. It's so fascinating, Mike, as I've, you know, had a foot in the online e-commerce space as well as, I mean, we, cause we got people from all industries and business models that come to our, through the training and our, and our services, but like they're wildly different, right? I mean, you take, you think about a broker and you think about Sunbelt, Calhoun, you know, all these different, you know, up and down the street, what we call mainstream main street. And they've got like buildings and most of the people have real estate licenses, it, and I think you have a pretty under, decent understanding of that that kind of um, 
broker, how would you compare that to then the e-commerce and like what to expect? And the reason I think this is fascinating, Mike, is because do you think that you would have used a normal broker if you would have had the old business before you pruned it all compared to like what you did now? And how would that have different, how would that have impacted the the process? Do you think? Uh, it would have impacted it greatly. So it would have been going through one of those Calhoun type. At that point, we weren't big enough to really go down the traditional M&A route. I mean, you you really should be million and a half, two million in EBITDA to go down the M&A as, as the floor. So we would have been in one of the smaller systems. And as I understand it, it's kind of a churn and burn industry, not a lot of help, a lot of tire kicking, time consuming, and you kind of get what you get. With Quiet Light and the e-commerce, and they do sell other types of businesses, but I I think they would say three quarters of their businesses are e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so we morphed into that and I really sold this as e-commerce, even though on the edges, I wasn't doing any Facebook ads or all of that marketing channels, all of those sales channels. We had nothing around that. We had loyal clients who would just keep coming to us and our stats on people coming and buying were great, but we weren't attracting lots of new people. But Chris Guthrie helped me spin this as here's the opportunity for a savvy e-commerce owner Mm -hmm. to layer Mm -hmm. on something new that would hopefully help sales jump. Like here's a solid product with solid customers. There's a growth opportunity for the right person. I I, I freaking love it, man, because like, what my experience is Mike, like the up and down the street, main street, like they don't like, it's so different of the types of brokers and the advisors that they attract the buyers that they attract where you have the e-commerce brokers, where it's like the whole world in the e-commerce and the online space, so e-commerce, SaaS, you know, the blogs, you know, some media and paid ads. And like, it's, I say like, from my experience, and I don't know if Mike, you've had that too, with the e-com fuel and it's, People, I'd say 80% generally view the company as an asset. This is serving me as the business owner for cash flow and wealth growth. And then the brokerage process is all towards an asset versus like, I'd say the main street, it's like a bunch of people transitioning jobs and paying a broker for transitioning jobs with personal guarantees on huge buildings and stuff. I mean, I mean that's a huge generalization, but I, like it's kind of a trend that I've, got, that I've picked up. I mean, is that... Reconcile yeah. with how, how you view it? Absolutely. That because the e-commerce, the businesses are changing. I mean, you're, you're able to sell this widget and you're able to drive revenue from Facebook ads. All of a sudden, Meta changes their rules. And that change, it's everything so much in flux in the industry. It's not that I have a lawn mowing business that's been mowing lawns for 30 years. It's and I have lots of stuff and people cool. and right. It's yeah. a very fast moving and people, I don't, they're passionate about being in business, but they aren't as passionate that I sell glass jars. That just happens to be the thing that allows me to be a passionate business owner, but I'm not as yeah. passionate about my specific product. Yeah. Right. It's super fascinating. Uh, I met one of these guys, um, and he's in a uh, rodeo weekend. So the online uh, mastermind and he just so happens to live in Stillwater, Mike. So it's national worldwide. And he's like, yeah, I live in Stillwater. I'm like, what the hell, man? You live four minutes from me. And he sells online courses and like online media and has been doing this for 15 years. And I was like, so what's the, 
uh, and I won't give Jeremy anything away about his company because they're making they're like printing money. And I was like, well, what's your passion with this topic? He's like, nothing. I love money. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, that is hilarious, man. And he like he had a virtual summit with two hundred thousand people on it, and it's just this topic that he's like somewhat interested in but it's like he sees himself as a business owner that likes to make money in the online space and so um what also i find fascinating is like the advisors so the the bankers the cpas the attorneys the brokers in main street are so different than also the uh than the e-commerce and i think about like when i uh, like because you like, we can maybe get into the buyers and the types of buyers so maybe like why don't you talk about your process but then i think about how the financing works too is like there's a lot of creativity in the online space because people are familiar with cash flow assets, not stuff that needs you know collateral. So maybe kind of walk us through and pick us back up. So you, you you engage with Quiet Light, they do a video with you. They're looking at you know you're you're building your pitch deck or your sim. So yep. how what was the the process going uh, forward from there? Yeah, so it took about a month to pull everything together with them. So the month of October we spent doing the video interview, getting all the documentation, all of our financials, breaking down kind of our sales and getting everything Chris wanted to have so he could hit the ground running. Then they advertise it and he's attracting 20, 30 people who sign NDAs, uh, narrow it down. I talked to, I think. Did they, sorry to interrupt. Did they put you on their, uh, their, uh, listings? Yes. Or was this, okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. It, that's their big move is they first put you on their website as a new business being sold generically. I mean, they mm-hmm. don't give away who you are. Um, and then that is the lead magnet in for them. They also have networks of family offices, private equity, other folks they've done deals with that they reach out to as well. And they, if you're a acquirer, I think you can sign up for their newsletter that with all their current listings. Mm-hmm. So they have a whole system for connecting the buyers and sellers. Um, Chris, then we have three or four Zooms with different folks. We end up getting a couple of LOIs. I pick one and this is December. So I'm going through, I'm like, I want this to be quick I, because it's the merry-go-round like things are going so well i have no idea when the the thing is going to tip over like any moment i'm feeling like this is too good to be true (laughs) now i was a little wrong on that i know the sales have continued to grow uh month over month but i'm like okay now's the time like now's the time i'm convinced the money's going to work for me personally let's just get this done have a buyer uh because we have all cloud-based online QuickBooks, Shopify, Bill.com, all these things, we we're able to set up the guy's LOI who we accepted, the acquirer. We set them up with read-only access. So I'm like, I'm not going to answer all your questions. You go <laughs> digging and you see what's there. Um, but then we started having follow-up Zooms, and this guy gave a good-looking LOI, but then I could just feel all of the retrading of he wanted to negotiate this, wanted to negotiate that. We wouldn't commit to timelines to like, well, maybe the closing is going to take a couple of extra months. I'm like, you're supposed to be done with this in a couple of weeks. And so what he put in his LOI, I held him to that, which, so we kicked him because he couldn't, he had financial investors behind him. So he was going to operate it, but he had other people's money behind him to help finance this, that 
the story unfolded after the LOI. A lot more cooks in the kitchen with a lot more say. And yeah, yep. Yep. But one of the guys who couldn't get a deal put together, Parker, who ended up acquiring the business, was in play at that time, but he just couldn't get everything together. So basically, okay, pause, end of the year, holidays, Christmas, New Year's, like we're not selling the business then, but we repackage everything. Thankfully, EBITDA keeps going up. So, so we repackage back on the market, but hey, we should get a higher asking price. Chris goes back to Parker, who was very interested, was trying to get a couple of people to pull money with him. Uh, he's a part owner in a couple other businesses. He couldn't make it happen in time. But Parker ends up through this process getting kind of pre-qualified for an SBA loan. And nice. I've heard all of the horror stories about SBA and taking time and deals imploding. And it was a more laborious process, but we decided uh, we got a couple more LOIs through the remarketing. And in January, I'm like, okay, we're going to go with Parker. We're going to do the SBA deal. It's going to take a month or two longer. Um, Why don't you unpack the labor? Like what is more laborious from your, from your, your perspective behind that comment compared to some other options that you might've thought of? Yeah, the private equity or family office can come in and basically write the check. So once they are con convinced the due diligence is done and the agreements have been written, like you're just going to close uh, is what I was told by all my advisors. The SBA process, you have a whole separate <laughs> kitchen. It's not even another cook in the kitchen. It's the getting the bank that will do the SBA loan, but the SBA is behind them guaranteeing the loan it's supposed to make the and then, you have the under, and then you have the valuation advisor that's not part of the bank who's a tech kind of like the appraisal too so you got three parties yes. <laughs> yes so you have all of this other bureaucratic system overlaying the the purchase that should make the asset purchase agreement simpler because there isn't as much creativity uh, involved with what the government will allow to be in the contract. There are, you cannot be, you cannot have earnouts. The seller can't maintain any stock. So it's just a very clean cash transaction with a five to 10% seller note. And they also want to have a pretty quick transition to get the new owner in and the old buy, the new mm -hmm. and old may just make that transition happen fast. So that was all appealing. But mm -hmm getting through all of the back and forth documentation all the way to uh, we have a tiny office we pay fifteen hundred dollars a month in rent um have another year and a half on the lease but the sba is like oh that is critically important to the operation of the business even though <laughs> even though we could pick an up online and, business <laughs> we could pick up and go work at WeWork or one of these types of things or the guys could work virtually like we don't other than it's our preference, we have an office with a whiteboard. Right. Like, we don't need this. But it ended up, <laughs> our landlord, it's a REIT with a big national management company, and we couldn't we couldn't get the thing negotiated. I Mike, up, you have to call you have to call Steve Schwartzman for the CEO of Blackstone in order to yeah, get out of your lease. <laughs> yeah, I, I ended up having to pay transition fees and legal fees, like five grand on $25,000 worth of lease payments left. I'm like, uh, and I ended up having to run a personal check to the land, to the management company two hours before closing. 
Like oh I've gosh. always paid my rent on time, yet they needed to send the VP in Chicago a photo of the check before they would sign <laughs> off on the deal. So it's just a dumb, like private equity yeah. or family office would be like, hey, we understand that the office is not critical to what you're doing, yet it, it almost delayed the deal days, if not weeks, to try to iron out such a tiny isn't deal. It isn't it fascinating, Mike? Because like also that the first time, Technically, they could have stroked the check, but they they couldn't get on board. So it's like you have this bureaucratic process where you can get a big check up front, or you have to convince someone else to write the check. So like it's like pick your poison almost, right? I, that's that is my experience. Is it the, the process is going to take months, and it's our, is it going to be months on the due diligence up front, or is it going to be months getting through the bureaucracy of the SBA loan? I don't put them in. I don't think the end time changes. It's just where where are the different milestones within that yeah, right, three right, months? Right. And what, what I find super cool about and um, I don't know what bank if you care to share the bank, but I know that like Live Oak's big in the SBA and the e commerce. But like you know, a lot of the banks, the SBA banks, which has to do because a lot of these, a lot of for the listeners in, but bank says no. Give it like one second thought. <laughs> Like go to other banks because there are banks that understand cash flowing assets and can fund that cash flowing asset, even though it might be a USB drive and a domain, they can still fund that where other people will just be like, nope, can't do it because you don't have any assets. And then people get that in their head and then they say that for the rest of their life. And it's like, no, no, that's that one bank or the one banker that said that. Yeah. Parker engaged a broker that specialized in SBA loans that Chris Guthrie, my selling broker also knew and that broker shopped it around and it was something like the indiana bank of online businesses i mean i don't remember the exact name of the bank that, <laughs> who cares yeah did, they, did the check clear mike is the question <laughs> and it did at the end of the day um so that's, that's awesome man so um the bank the appraiser and the buyer all like how did they view the headache, risk, anxiety about your VP of engineering that you had, where you were concerned about keeping this thing going, how did they view that risk? No one brought it up. So that's the no shit. That's wow. the crazy thing about the due diligence of what different people are concerned about right. going through wow. this was it seemed like everybody just took it on good faith that, hey, you got products, you have a tech support system, it's all just going to keep going. So that... One of my close friends, also an entrepreneur, is, who's never sold a business but has a couple of businesses, he's like, I just don't know that I could buy a business because the asymmetry of information, like the thing I'm concer most concerned about living with this business for 20 years, no one brought up in due diligence. I mean, you're legitimately Mike as on traffic and the guy that's the industry guru for 20 years has got a concern about this. Well, no one – I mean it, it – for all the for all like whatever they plan on doing with it, there's a lot of good reasons to buy a cash flow asset that's got a lot of clients yeah. like that because you could diversify a bunch. And I maybe like did they did you know or do you know what they're planning on doing with it? Like how are they planning on scaling the company? No, other than so he's selling one of his other part time businesses, and this will be Parker's business that he owns 100. percent So he's transitioning right. into wanting to do this more full time. And his background is the sales, marketing, online, e-commerce side. So Got it. he feels he can scale it just based on bringing more online acumen to mm -hmm. the system. 
And I think Makes he's, sense. I, I think he's right. That's what we were selling. That's the part I didn't know. I was the engineer who came up with the product market fit, but didn't bump up the sales marketing aspects. That's kind of the that's leaving something for the next guy, which is what oh, I learned sure, through man. your training. About, yeah. Oh, and I think about the people that um, I know that are in this space that you're like that you that you were playing in with the the ecom fuel and like the online stuff these people are data engineers that know how to take ads and then build this like amazing process to just generate cash i mean like and so if you could take that on top of your blog and all the followers and all that stuff i mean i it's just a, like you're, it's an interesting uh interesting perspective because that's where the operator and what they're going to do with it to get the return is a huge, huge component of it. Right. So Dude, this, I'm so happy for you. And yeah. like the fact that you get all your cash up front, I just love it, man. It's just, uh, it's such a cool deal. And like, God bless it. It's awesome, man. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you look back as you look back at anything you do differently? No, I don't think so. Because I mean, you gave me the very nice compliment of being pretty thoughtful and analytical. I, I think I did think around the problem enough. And part of my selling proposition was, I think I want to go back to school and become a math teacher. And that still might be one of the things I end up doing. But my wife has convinced me to just take a one year sabbatical without making any commitments and without jumping right to the next thing to just let I've been working now for since I was 14 years old, like just take a breather. <laughs> and, uh, She's very wise and knows me well. And so that I think is one of the big takeaways of this whole process is don't feel like I have to rush to the next thing. Yeah. Good, good for you, man. That's awesome. And I, and based on how our conversations are going, I know that you intentionally design your life and the thing and the activities and where you spend your time, the people you spend your time with that there's going to, hopefully there's enough there where to keep you busy oh, yeah. <laughs> where you don't yeah. have an idea that gets thrown your way in one of these groups that you're, no, I have a couple of other things I am working on. Um, so no, I'm not just sitting around idle. Mike, man, this is so cool. I, I appreciate you sharing the story and I'm, and it's fun that we, I, I was able to get the update while hitting record. So uh, the listeners got to hear it for the first time with me as well. Um, man, I, you, you know, the two yeah. questions, what's, uh, what's the word intentional mean for you? Yeah. In, intentional means being decisive. Uh, and one of the books I didn't mention, I think it's called quitting by Annie Duke. And she just talks about almost decision making in reverse of quitting is a decision and humans are bad at quitting on time. Usually we wait too long. So it, it, I wrap intentional, just that focused decision making. I love it, man. How about uh, if people want to reach out, chat with you, what's the best place to get in contact or follow you? Yeah, right now I'm pretty much just on LinkedIn. So find Mike's back on LinkedIn and I have PE after my name, professional engineer. So I'm the guy, message me, happy to chat. And uh, Ryan, you're such a big part of this last 12 months of this journey of figuring out what I wanted to do and what my options were. So I, I couldn't be more hap happy. And I hope this interview can help someone else the way all of your other podcast oh, guests awesome. helped me out. That's awesome, Mike. I appreciate the compliments, man. Well, hey, man, this has been a, a blast having you on. Thanks, Ryan. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mike. I can't tell you how much I respect his thoughtfulness, the amount of time he spent thinking about what he wanted. And if there's one takeaway I would have for you is 
it's only up to you on what you want. Do you see how there's no right or wrong answer between ESOP, private equity, internal sale, keeping the company? I mean, Mike could have truly kept that company, clipped coupons, solved for annual cash flow for as long as he wanted, but he had to think about in the spirit of intentional and what the definition is, what is that clearly identified outcome that he wanted and how does it impact his first principle, his vision? What does he want from his leadership role, his employees, his, his clients, and for his life? Second one is his financial targets, which he dove into a lot. And then how does that reconcile with his exit options that accomplish principle one and two? And what does that do for his timeline? And Mike was able to think through the pain and the effort and the energy and the capital it would take to eventually do that ESOP option like he was thinking about. And it didn't make sense for him. And that's okay. It truly is okay. But what I love more than anything is talking to people that clearly know what they want. And obviously people like Mike or anybody that comes to the academy don't always know exactly what they want, which is the purpose of the academy. But I love it when people do the hard work to get that clear outcome because then the road to that clear outcome should become a lot more clear. It's going to be filled with hard choices. I mean, as you heard from Mike, I mean, it's not easy, but I think the context that is provided with that goal of why the decisions are getting made are worth the effort that it takes to get that clear outcome. So I just highly suggest checking out the Intentional Growth Academy if you're not clear. If you are clear and you're trying to figure out what is the pathway to get to your goal, go check out the Intentional Growth Financial Scorecard to get a score on how well you're viewing and running the company like a financial asset so you can start making purposeful action and understanding the trade-offs between reinvestment, distributions, and forecasting out your cash position and the equity value of the company so you can be excited to do the hard work that you have to do every day. So I appreciate you tuning in. Stay tuned to next week because we have our quarterly economic and M&A update. We have ITR Economics that's going to be on the show talking about what's the current state. We've, there's been quite a few things that have happened since I had them back on the uh, last on the show, like all the banking issues, the commercial real estate issues, what's going on, global su supply chain issues, all that kind of stuff. Then the second segment will be Butcher Joseph, we're going to be diving into merger and acquisition activity, valuations, debt equity, you know, truly understand what's going on. And then I have another guest on, John Twing, who is going to be uh, talking about the new and updated SBA loan rules. There's a lot of uh, flexibility that's been introduced in some of the new SBA is uh, rolling out. John is on the show to be explaining to us what is going on and what's in those SOPs, as well as what we should be looking forward to as those rules and um, SOPs get rolled out into the actual lenders who will be acting on those new rules. So uh, it's going to be a lot of good material that is very actionable and insightful for privately held entrepreneurs. So thanks everybody for tuning in and I'll see you next week.